Today's guest once said, like any other life-sustaining resource, language can be depleted, polluted, contaminated, eroded, and filled with artificial stimulants. We'll find out what she meant in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Marilyn McIntyre, who is described as a dedicated list maker and award-winning author of books on language and faith. Having given up full-time teaching for more time writing, I am delighted, Marilyn, that you've been able to take time out of your schedule to join us today here on Mind Talk. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Marilyn, you have created what I would consider to be a thoughtful discourse on the breadth and the value of list making. And I have to say that when I first looked at the title, which is Make a List, um, I thought, well, people make lists all the time what to buy at the grocery store, what you need to do today. And then I looked at the subtitle, which is how a simple practice can change our lives and open our hearts. And I became intrigued. So let's start with that. Let's start with how a simple practice such as list making can change our lives and open our hearts. Well, I've been a list maker for a long time. And one of the things that seems to me always to happen when you begin to make a list of things you want, things that trouble you, um, ways to approach a problem, lists generate more lists for one thing. And once you start a list, there's no particular end to it. And so I find that as you begin to notice what you notice, more comes. And you take yourself by surprise. So lists seem to me to be ways of opening space for the spirit to move through you and for something to open up that you didn't plan. So for instance, when you begin to make a list of, say, ways to deal with a difficult relationship, let's say, and you put down the obvious things like chill out, take some time off, um, have a conversation in this or that way. But some new strategies will begin to come up and you notice yourself noticing them. So I think it's a way of tapping into a deeper place in your mind and your memory. Notice what you notice. It sounds like we're talking about being intentional and mindful yes. about the world around us. Yes, and about the world within us. Ah, good point. You heard me at the beginning of today's conversation uh, share a quote uh, from you, uh, so I'm sure you recognize it, but it really is quite a stunning one. So just for a moment, I, I, I'm going to digress from making a list to the quote that you made in another book that you have written and ask you more about that. Like any other life-sustaining resource, language can be depleted. What do you mean by that? I mean that as we listen to the discourse around us in the mass media and in ordinary conversation and the very scripted language we hear on 
television and import into our own lives, we can we probably all notice how words get overused, they turn into buzzwords, they get flattened, they get appropriated by certain partisan groups and therefore contaminated with ideologies we don't want to subscribe to, so they become kind of unusable. And I think we've all become used to hyperbole and generalities and abstractions that are evasions from a kind of specificity and truth-telling that we ought to be able to demand of those who are accountable to us. Specificity is a way of being accountable. But listen to most political discourse or commercial discourse. It's deliberately unspecific, hyperbolic, and you know, filled with vapid adjectives to distract us from the fact that we're not really getting any information. That's an overstatement, but I think it's out there. Um, you know, I, I, it sounds like you really value words and what they can mean and what they can elicit in an individual. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah. Um, I really believe that language is one of the things that makes us distinctively human. Not that some animal groups don't have something linguists call language. But language is, in the, the biblical story, language is the power that's given to Adam to name the creatures of the earth and take dominion, which I don't think means, you know, exploit them. I do think it means make your home on the earth, look around, name the things around you, and care for them. And so, you know, we get that beautiful passage at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And there's a way in which utterance really lies at the heart of that story, that things were breathed and spoken into being. So I think that high understanding of language and its legacy is something we need to retrieve because we squander it and we use it in ways that actually um, weaken it. You know, as I'm listening to your uh, thinking process about the value of words and language, I'm reminded of how often things are said to children uh, that are enormously powerful, how often things are said from one adult to another, enormously powerful, and perhaps because we can't necessarily see the word, but we certainly can see the impact of the words, we don't pay as much attention as we need to. Right. Right. Well, words stay with people. Right. I've often asked classes um, to just think of a a line from a poem or a hymn or a phrase even that stays with you. And... Consider how you carry it, how it comes back when you need it. It's one reason memorizing poetry used to be such a commonplace in school curricula. It isn't anymore. But what you learn by heart stays in your heart. It's available for the life moments when you need it. True indeed. When you talk about making a list, uh, again, as, as I said a few moments ago, the for many people the the knee jerk reaction to that is let me grab my phone 
let me type in a couple of letters which will let me know they mean a word, but I'm not going to type the whole word because who's got time? That's not <laughs> yes. the kind of list making you're talking about. No, I think that those things have their place and there, of course, is a practical value too. So I don't want to just be a Luddite and um, dismiss the value of the devices that we have at our disposal. But I do think that texting, for instance, even further loosens our connection to the deep histories of words, the etymologies, the way words carry in them and in their spelling a reflection of a long history and the evolution of that word itself. Uh, there's a residue of that in the word. In writing the word, there's a brain-to-hand connection. So when you write a word, you craft something, you pause over it. And the more we abbreviate that process, the more I think we affect ourselves neurologically, we kind of reduce collective memory and personal memory of what we speak with and what it means to say what we say. I think what do you mean is a really powerful question and we need to ask, ask more often because I think it's easy to fall into saying things that you only half mean or have half thought about. What you mean is a question that keeps people accountable. And it also keeps the listener from going off in a direction that was not at all intended, or perhaps intended, but at least with clarity. Yes. Clarity is a gift. I'm always so grateful for people's clarity, even if they're saying something hard. You at least know what you have to deal with. That's an interesting perspective, um, that clarity is a gift. And, And as I consider even what you've just said, it makes more sense than perhaps we might ordinarily think of. As you've said, so many times when we get clarification about something, we either like it or we don't like it. And depending on whether we like it or not, we'll often determine whether we take it in or not. Uh, and, And we will ignore sometimes all that it actually means, all that it actually tells us. a list, you learn something. So I want you to walk us through the process of a list that you have created for yourself that resulted in new learning. Okay. Let's see. I've written a lot of lists. Indeed. Um, (laughs) And some of them uh, I've written for my own purposes. I made a little series of postcards at one time that were all lists just for fun. One of them was what marriage teaches. Uh, and it was, I think I probably did it around the time of an anniversary, so I may have done it as a gift to my husband, but really became a reflection on marriage that was very helpful to me. And I have the book here, so let me just find it. I was going to say, it is in the book, so um, folks can 
look it up. I and I also uh, yeah. noticed what weddings require, which was also a very interesting list. <laughs> but but share with yes. us share with us marriage. I can do the weddings one if you want. Let's let's talk about the marriage. Okay. Well, so this list was called "What Marriage Teaches," and I just started. You know, once you have a title, it gives you some energy. It opens a space for the imagination. And so where it starts is there's more than one way. Um, What goes without saying doesn't, which that was fun to put down because, you know, a lot of things when you, especially when you first start out in a marriage, you take things for granted that were part of your own family culture. And then you realize this wasn't at all part of your partner's family culture and what you are assuming doesn't go without saying. So what goes without saying doesn't. There are no isms in intimacy. You can't just lean on your ideology and expect that to shore you up. You have to talk about it. Love requires imagination. Laughter heals. Taboos are toxic. A hug provides more energy than a vitamin pill. Apologize is an active verb. And so on. It's a kind of a long list. But as I came up with them, as you might hear in what I've read so far, um, it was not only that I came up with thoughts or memories or sudden insights about my own experience of marriage, but it was partly a process of coming up with fun ways to put it down. Um, and so the relationship of list making to po- the practice of poetry has seemed very close to me at times. Sometimes you write a list and it wants to be a poem and you kind of move, move lines around and it starts to act like a poem. And a few times I've published a list and somebody said, Oh, I really liked your poem. And I think, huh, wasn't a poem. It was a list, (laughs) but they're really close. And a lot of poems are lists. Like, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. You know, many poets resort to lists as a structure of a poem. It's very true. You say that yeah. lists are mirrors. Say more about that. Yes. Well, to use the marriage list as an example, the further I went in making what is a much longer list than what I read, the more I invited myself into reflection about marriage and the more I recognized about my own experience of marriage, my gratitude for the particulars of the rituals of life that we've developed together, the more I found ways to put down um, some specifics about how we get through the hard spots and about what comes up. So in that sense, as you write, you mirror something back to yourself. You begin to recognize what's coming forth. And so just making a space for it, giving us a little time, saying, oh, yeah, there's, there's more. I'm not done yet. That opens something up. And when I've done this with classes, when I've said, let's make a list of, this is one I've done often, let's make a list of verbs for things light does. And we start with light shines, light illumines, light, um, I don't know, enlightens, light burns. And then people begin to, as you say all the obvious things, then people begin to say things that are less obvious, like light bends and it oozes and it seeps and it dances. And so the verbs become much livelier as imagination gets triggered. But you have to get through the obvious stuff first. 
it it sounds like even in as you describe that list that you worked uh, with your students on, there's a there's a particular connectedness to the self, to the language, to the world in which that individual who's creating the list experiences their life. Uh, Again, you know, just the the simple concept of make a list is so much more broad and powerful than I think we typically give lists credit for. Yeah, I think so too. And even, even a grocery list can be a mirror. Just, you know, what do what do we eat? What do we buy? Every once in a while, if you take a step back and look at your own grocery list, you have a sense of a pattern of life. Once in a while, don't you go to the grocery store and notice something you've never bothered to even try because it's, it's not on the list you always make. <laughs> so in, in fact, this whole idea, you know, it's interesting. It's such a simple word, a list. It's a, it's a good four letter word. And it can open up something so much more broad than we typically acknowledge within ourselves. It's really, as I was reading Make a List, I thought it it was, it's a fascinating read. It's a very thoughtful read on how to experience yourself and to be more aware of yourself in the world. Yeah. And Sometimes it can go pretty deep, like, what do I want now can get you to a place of really reflecting on what is this season of life, and what are the things I no longer want, and what are the things I want at a deeper level. Or if you just make a list of things I really believe, you know, it becomes a little credo. It doesn't have to be long paragraphs of theologizing about your life what do I really believe about um, family life, about public process, about God, about children? And uh, so those can go to to some depth, but they're also lighthearted lists that can be kind of fun. I wrote one called a manifesto for moving day, which was just (laughs) things to recognize about what's happening when you try to pack up and move. And that one had very practical value when you're trying to sort through your stuff, like if you haven't used it for the last year, maybe you don't need it. But it's a little record of a conversation one has with oneself at particular moments. I think there's, and then there's... I did one one time, I do them for occasions, and I did one one time for Mother's Day called Other Mothers. Some of the items on that one were the woman who taught you to read the babysitter who played with you instead of watching TV, the woman next door who came to your piano recitals, the boyfriend's mom who still liked you after you broke up, the old woman at church who prayed for you, and so on. That one goes on too. But I just found myself feeling more and more grateful for the women in my life, that I, the elders that I thought of as other mothers. You know, it occurs to uh, me that so many of your lists actually would make wonderful, useful cards that people could frame and hold on to for much of a lifetime. (laughs) But on a manifesto for moving day, there were a couple that really jumped out at me and I think will jump out at a lot of people. For example, the velveteen rabbit 
will not become real. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or bits it's of... It's sad, but true. It is sad, but it is very true. So maybe you can rethink how you are holding on to that. Or perhaps one of my favorite ones, bits of unidentifiable hardware are not potentially useful. How many people fall into that trap? <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> or you, other people's stuff is easier to sort. That is very true. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's better not to supervise. One of the things that I enjoy about all the lists that you've created and that you recommend that we create for ourselves, that there's a lot of thought in them, but there's also a great deal of practicality in them. Yeah, I think one of the fun things about what comes up as you're making a list is that it comes up from different levels of awareness. And a single list can contain things that are quite serious and worth further reflection um, and come from a place of depth. And other things can be really lighthearted and funny and just fun to put down. And so I think it, it gives you a sense of the variegated way in which your consciousness uh, works. One of the the lists, as I said, in in addition to sharing your own lists uh, with uh, the audience, you also give uh, several lists of uh, things that people might like to try for themselves. And one of the uh, lists that you suggest, which I thought was really very important, perhaps particularly in today's world, but perhaps particularly for always, is a list of undue pressures on young people you love. So many times, as you know, parents forget uh, that young people are either not full-fledged adults or two-year-olds. Talk about your thought in suggesting that particular list. What were you hoping people would get from that? I think that it's really easy, especially with the people we live with or live near and love, to just kind of pigeonhole them. And also to reduce our perceptions to, oh, they're acting out again. Or, you know, she must just be tired. But to really name what are the pressures this person is under is to pause long enough to recognize that all of us lead very complex lives, including children. And especially now, kids are under lots of stress. So much, they're navigating an electronic jungle that's unprecedented in its complexity. And there are dangers in the world that they have to be aware of with all their, you know, gun drills um, in school. And so kids are carrying a level of anxiety and a a level of complexity and a level of pressure to get into college or to make the team that I think are peculiar to their generation. I remember a conversation with one of my daughters some time ago when I started a sentence, well, when I was your age, and she very sweetly, without being snarky about it, said, Mom, It's not the way it was when you were my age. And it was just a gentle reminder that the world she is navigating is really different. So 
it was helpful to me at one point to just sit and think about the particular pressures the girls faced when they walked out the door in the morning and went to school. For those listening, there's probably one or two people in the world who don't write lists routinely, maybe even more than that. Is there a way for them to start uh, with the uh, openness that you describe in your book? Well, I think one very non-threatening way to try this out is to give yourself an arbitrary number, like three things I like about or five things I've noticed about or seven things I wonder about, or, um, you know, 10 things I want, 10 places I'd like to go. But just play around with giving yourself very short lists, slightly longer lists, and see what happens. If you sort of create that space, it becomes your tennis court where you can now play the game. And knowing that it doesn't have to be very long, knowing that this is a short process, Knowing that it's a process of just seeing what happens and finding out makes it all very experimental and playful. And really, all of this is a form of play, even the stuff that comes to a pretty deep place of fears or anxieties or long-term plans can start with a really playful process. I'm going to let something happen. Do you recommend that one write a list alone or with a partner? Oh, both can be really fun. It's really fun to do this together in a group of people. And I've done quite a bit of list making with classes and I do retreats and workshops with people all over the country. And it's so much fun to get people together and a big white sheet of paper and say, okay, so let's make a list of things I hope from the weekend, things I hope for from this weekend together, or things I really don't want to talk about, or Um, words that trouble me or whatever it is, but you, you put something out there and then people begin to add to it. And that's a very synergistic process. As soon as one person says something, something occurs to someone else. So I think doing it in a group is very valuable. Doing it alone takes you inside. I'm an introvert. I like hanging out inside, but some people might find that, List making is really much more fun if they do it with a partner or a group of friends. Marilyn, how does the listener get more information about the work that you're doing? I have a website. It's just MarilynMcIntyre.com. McIntyre is M-C-E-N-T-Y-R-E. If you put in an I, you won't get there. Okay. (laughs) MarilynMcIntyre.com. Dot com. And, um... Yeah, the books are on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. They're, most of them are published by Erdman's. So they're available online. But uh, I'd be happy to hear from people, and it's really fun to especially hear from readers what they're doing once they've read the books. 
Marilyn. This one was really fun to write, and it felt like uh, something I wanted to share, so I hope people enjoy it. Well, certainly I enjoyed it, and it it really opened up a lot of new thinking pathways for me. So I appreciate the work that you've done in the creation of Make a List, How a Simple Practice Can Change Our Lives and Open Our Hearts. Marilyn McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk, which is available to you on demand. You can go to mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. You can sign up at iTunes. You can download the Mind Talk app from iTunes or Google Play. So there are lots of places where you can get a hold of Mind Talk. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk. So send an email to me at Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G, Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a professional of your choosing. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And folks, remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. Thank you.